Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Go with me, please, to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to go through this as quickly as possible. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to go to verse 7. We are in a series called Following John. Finish it for me. To the heart of Jesus. Some of you got it. Okay, following John to the heart of Jesus. We've been going through the gospel of John. We've been going through the love letters of John, three of them. Now we are in the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible and the final letter that John penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John himself would say, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And the Spirit of God revealed to him some things. And that revelation, he wrote down, a lot of it didn't make sense. He's, he's seen pictures and visions. And he's writing it down, being obedient to the prodding of the Holy Spirit. We pick it up in chapter 2. Last week we were in chapter 1. And last week we talked about we will not understand the book of Revelation if you're trying to figure out the chronological events of what is to come. Not that that is unimportant. It's not the point. So there's a difference between it being unimportant and it being the purpose of Revelation. The purpose of Revelation is not for you to figure out what God's about to do next. You leave that to God. The purpose of Revelation is for you to know that he is with you in whatever you are embarking upon, whatever situation you are in the midst of. The book of Revelation is fundamentally the first four to five words in the book. Revelation 1.1. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's revealing himself to us. Not to one day to figure out what's he doing next, but right now, He is with me. He walks with me. I shared that last week. I don't want to get into that again today. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So now we're about to look at churches here. To him who overcomes, meaning it's not everybody, but to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Remember back in Genesis beginning, There was a tree of life. Now here we see the revelation at the end. Tree of life. I will give him the right to eat from the tree of everlasting life. You can't have both. You can't have the tree of good and and evil, evil and everlasting life. And so he's saying here, if you're an overcomer though, I will give you the right to eat from this tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts Open our minds to your spirit, to your words today, to how it relates to us. In Jesus' name, amen. The seven churches. I started off here, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He's about to talk to seven churches. Now, these churches actually existed. The churches, did you note each church was not like, you know, Baptist Church, Pentecostal Church, United Church, Anglican Church, you know. Didn't say that. They were called after their town. So I'm going to just put this in there. There is no, in God's economy, there is no Pentecostal Church. There is no Cornerstone Church. There is no Gathering Place Church. There is no, you know, whatever you begin, the churches that you begin to call, Campus Church and different. 
It's the Church of Aurora. And there's a Church of Newmark. And there's a Church of Richmond Hill. They're called after their cities. Churches are identified in God's books based on the location of where they are. Did you notice how that was true here? So therefore, now it doesn't mean everybody that shows up in church is, is, is a follower of Jesus. That's not true. We know that membership in a church does not get you into heaven. Uh, any more than, you know, membership into Costco makes you the president of Costco. You know, like you're not, you don't get automatic access. And so therefore, he is addressing to the churches, seven churches. And in these letters, each letter could be preached on. So you're going to be thankful I'm not going to spend seven messages on seven churches. Because it would be too arduous, and I think we would lose the point. Because I think that the common denominator we have to grab from these. So I want to share five common denominators because these letters embody a pattern, not only for seven churches that existed 2,000 years ago, but the pattern for the church age. And we are living in the church age. There's a pattern for our church age. First of all, here are some of the common denominators. Each of these seven letters to the churches, seven churches, are addressed to the angel of the church in the community of Asia Minor. It's addressed to the angel of the church. Now, you'd think a celestial being. But if you dig deeper into the word angel, angel actually comes from the word messenger. And from that word messenger, messenger was not meant to be an angelic messenger as much as one applied to the leader of the local congregations. So what he is saying is he's saying each letter is addressed to the leaders of the local congregations of seven churches. Leaders, this is addressed to you. Well, we need to sit up and listen then. Secondly, there's a second common denominator. Each letter discloses something of the person of Jesus. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of time on this one. Each letter discloses something of the person of Jesus. It reveals more of Jesus. So let me begin with you. Seven letters. Here we are. Verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now this particular church he was addressing was called the Loveless Church. They had lost their first love. But he says he's describing something of the person of Jesus. says, He holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden candlesticks. The lampstands or the candlesticks represent the churches as told at the end of the chapter before chapter 1. And you will note the same reference that Jesus himself is the one who is moving among the leaders of the churches. So what do we learn about Jesus here? We learn he is moving among the people and the leadership of the churches. I get, I'm thrilled with this when I think about this one. That he is saying him who holds the stars, is moving among you. Today, what is today? October the 30th, 2022, here, he's saying, I'm moving among you. Now, either he's a liar, or he's moving among us, as he said. He's here. That excites me to no end. In some ways, it sometimes terrifies me, too. Next, verse 8, something else about the character. It, remember, each letter discloses something of the person of Jesus, so it talks about he is moving among us, walking among us. In verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. And here he is addressing this church is the persecuted church who was riddled with fear 
afraid of the times. And Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last. That in the midst of your suffering, I have been and am and I will continue to be. And when you feel dead and there's nothing left to give, I am there to hold you up and give you life. Praise God. He's revealing, I'm here to give you life in the midst of your fear. I grab that. He continues on in verse 12. The next one, it reveals something more about Jesus. These are the words, verse 12, chapter 2, of him who has a double-edged sword. We're talking here of the compromising church, a church that was lost in the sins of lust. He says, I have a double-edged sword. So we see Jesus with this double-edged sword. Double-edged sword is the word of God. We know that in Ephesians. It's the word of God. Double-edged is meant to be that it's a sword that will bring full justice not only outwardly but back again. It's not only to be given to those, but it's also to be received. He says, uh, in the compromising church, in the midst of sins and lust, the word of the Lord will cut through this. Verse 18 He says, the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire. So here, another character of Jesus. His eyes are blazing fire. He's speaking here to a corrupt church. They were tolerating sin. And he was saying, my eyes will purge like fire. Sin in your midst. We go to chapter 3, verse 1. Words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Here he's speaking to a dead church. The church had a reputation of life, but spiritually they were dead. And he is speaking and he's he's saying he holds the seven stars. The Holy Spirit, they had a reputation for life, but the Holy Spirit said, I can't move among you, you're dead. Verse 7, chapter 3, from the words of him who is holy and true, he's speaking to the faithful church. This actually was a good church. This church was functioning and firing, and he's saying, hang in there. It's a whole story, but hang in there, guys. Continue. Stand strong. Don't grow weary doing good. Stay at it. Stay at it. Stay at it. I like that. Faithful church. And his cry basically to that church is hang in there. I am holy and I am true. I am there. Stay with it. Stay with it. Don't turn away. And then chapter 3, verse 14. Last one. These are the words of the amen, the faithful, the true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. And here he's addressing the lukewarm church. Their inability to see right from wrong anymore. They're just going down the road in the middle. Now, he's calling that church to come back to the faithful, true witness of what he's given them. Each letter is addressed to the leadership of the church. So I want to start by first thing in common with all seven churches. Number one, Each is addressed to the messengers of the church. Secondly, each letter discloses something of the person of Jesus. We just shared that. Thirdly, in all seven of these letters, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, in all seven, you will find Jesus saying in all of them, I know your deeds. You'll see that consistent. I know your deeds, I know your deeds, I know your deeds. Over and over. Five of the letters to the five congregations, there was something being neglected and overlooked by those congregations. He calls it out. Two of the letters contain approval. He's, that's the ones he's saying, guys, stay with it. Hang in there. Don't turn back. Five, he's, he's calling them out. Two of them, he's saying, you, you got to stay true. Stay true. I see it. I see it. I see it. Fourthly, all the letters say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. All the letters say that. Comma. 
And fifthly, all seven letters tell you that to those who overcome, who confront what he is saying, to those who take seriously what's being said and respond to it, there's a reward. To those who overcome, overcome doesn't mean you turn back. Overcome means you go through it and you are victorious. To those who confront this, there's a reward. These letters were written because the church is the expression of Christ and has been for 2,000 years. And that being said, evil contests the church all the time. When I say church, I don't mean brick and mortar. I hope you realize that. It's not a building. The church is you. The church is people, the body of Christ. And he is saying the church will constantly be at the other end of the spear of the enemy. You are the enemy of evil. You are that which will stand in contrast and bring righteousness and, and, and light where darkness is. And so therefore you will be contested. You will be sought after. And the call there is that evil will confront the church. And we need to see how Jesus comes in and addresses this. The seven letters. Sixty years after the birth of Jesus, we have Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus, remember, he was born. We're going to celebrate that in a couple of months. But here we have 60 years later, uh, more than 60 years later, actually, where this is a picture of Jesus walking among his churches. Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation 3. Jesus, in the very first, Jesus says, I'm walking among you and I'm observing some things. I'm observing some things. And all seven letters, he's making an observation. Now remember, it's not about the seven churches. It's about the church. And so he's moving among us. Let's think about this. Roar Cornerstone. What's he observing as he looks down the timeless portal as he makes observation of the church, as Jesus begins to walk, he's saying, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this. And he's calling us on the things he's observing. What besets the church? I want to share four things. This is the focus of, I think, today. Number one, we pick it up in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, 3, and 4. Feel free to follow me. Revelation 2, 2, 3, and 4. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. I mean, all those are good. But here he is, verse four. Yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had right back at the beginning. You can hear the heart of the Savior saying, you've been doing great. You've been doing great. Kudos to you. But, verse 4, but something's cut in. I'm going to suggest it's life has cut in. It's interesting. People who study corporations, great corporations that rise to their pinnacle, a great place of success, observe that those great corporations that rise so quickly often plateau and lose their momentum or they absolutely lose their place and disintegrate completely and disappear off the charts. 
And the dynamics that occasion the rise to the place of effectiveness become forgotten in the machinery of the organization. So what drew them to the place of greatness gets lost in the bureaucracy of the corporation. What brought them their great success no longer is their driving point anymore. They are now going through the motions to keep it successful. And that takes over and they lose the vital life of the corporation and they ebb and flow and disappear. This happens in life. And this is where he's calling us. This first point here is the substitution of activities for priorities. The substitution of activities, activities for priorities. Listen, activities do not equal succeeding. Doing more does not accomplish more. Sometimes doing less accomplishes more. And I mentioned this past week when we were at the conference, Breathe, to just slow it down. And I like what they said. Our superintendent, our new superintendent got up and he said, he said this. He said, we are investing in the health of the pastors because if we do not have healthy pastors, we do not have healthy churches. So invest in the health of the pastors, and then you'll have healthy churches. But if your pastor's not healthy, the church won't be healthy. And I thought that's a good point. That's a really good point. It's a good point to pray for your pastors. Because we need to be healthy. We need to be healthy so that the congregation can be healthy. The churches can be healthy. And I'm going to go farther. When the church is healthy, the community is healthy. And so the investment of that is not the same. So we come back to this point. The substitution of activities. We, we do things, do things, do things, do things. Instead of focusing on our priorities. This happens in marriages. Too often in marriages, what brought the place to such an exciting moment of marriage and the family starts, then moves into this mundane place where you're going through the motions, but you're drawing away from each other. You've, what brought you together is no longer the priority. Now you coexist. And the fire is gone. And the marriage now becomes something in trouble because it's unsustainable at that place. Likewise in our families. It's exciting, the families and what takes place in the families. But be careful of the priorities when they begin to be displaced that the family, the things that matter, should matter, no longer are mattering. We are going through motions as a family. No longer is there communication. No longer is there intimacy. No longer is there genuine affection one for another and the giving and serving of one another, which is all a part of a family. Families just survive. He's addressing that. He's calling us on it. I thank God he calls us on things. He says, no matter how much you do, don't lose your touch with me. No matter where you go, what you do. He's saying, don't mistake your activity for answering to your priorities. Because life gets busy, gets complicated, and you feel you have to chase that down, and you lose out on the most important things. One of the most dramatic illustrations I think that Jesus describes regarding this comes in Matthew chapter 7, 22. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, 22. Many will say to me, Jesus says, on that last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not, in your name, did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? Verse 23. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from you, you evildoers. They had activity, 
but no real relationship. They had authority, but they had no intimacy. And he's calling them. And here's the, here's the call to you and I today. What besets us? Here's something. The substitution of activities for priorities. Have you done that? Have priorities, have, or have other things that now prioritize what should be most important, taken your time and place? Something you used to do and you don't anymore. Secondly, we pick it up in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. The second thing he calls, they tolerated impurity. So they had substitutions for priorities. Secondly, impurity. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Down to verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Then down to verse 24. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have learned not and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Okay, there's two characters that are Old Testament characters brought out here. One is Balaam and, and the movement called Baalism. And I'm not talking about the worship of Baal. Um, there's a person, his name was Balaam. And there was Jezebel. We know of her, the story of Elijah and Jezebel and everything. These two characters, and out of that, he's not describing that they've come back to life. And, and some have said, well, there's actually another person called Balaam, another person called Jezebel. But most reputable scholars do not believe that, nor do I, because when you read their stories, you see something bigger than just the people. The story of Balaam, and I don't want to, it's a fascinating story around Balaam and the talking donkey. The story of Balaam is when an evil nation was trying to bring a curse on God's people, and he wanted the priest to do that. He wanted a curse brought down. But the priest was saying, I can't curse God's people. God's too powerful. It's not going to work. But after much attempt, and you watch the story unfold, but if I can cause them to walk in disobedience, then the blessing, the hedge of God will come off of them. And then they will fall. But as long as they're obedient to God and walking with God, I can't do a thing. Listen, we are secure in God. But should you walk in immorality, should you walk away from God, and you're susceptible to everything else everyone else is susceptible to. That's what Balaam did. So he said, I can't touch those people because they're gods. But here, send women, send prostitutes, send lust, send sexual immorality. In. And as they engaged in that, the blessing came off. And he said, now you can get them. Now the curse can be brought. Do you see how that? That's all Balaam. So when he mentions Balaam, that's the whole story there. And then Jezebel... We hear the Jezebel spirit. It's the same thing. It's the spirit of lust. It's the spirit of enticement. And in that, Jesus calls this. In both cases, these people were influenced towards sexual immorality. God is not prudish about sexuality. God has given clear scriptural guidelines for maximum sexual gratification and fulfillment in the confines of a man and woman in marriage. 
absolutely through the roof satisfaction and maximum fulfillment. God is not prudish with that. Verse 24 ends, he says, about Satan's deep secrets. And it can be defined in to consciously pursue impurity under the guise of having permission from God. You pursue impurity under the guise of having his permission. I mean, who of us may be here today, this morning, haven't met those who felt they have some special license from God to indulge themselves in areas of sexual inappropriateness. And somehow God has given them that license to do that. And so that's the point. That's Baalism, that's Jezebel, where you say, I've got his blessing to do this. It's not just that you are involved in immorality and you know it and you know it's sin. That's not what he's talking about. It's when you are involved in sexual promiscuity and you say God has blessed you because of it. God has given you a license to do that. He understands. He's okay with it. There's a lot of that going on. That's Baalism and Jezebelism. Where you feel you have a license to indulge in this. 21st century that we live in, we live in largely an unrestricted access to corruption today. The question is not, do you love Jesus? The question is not, are you a part of a church? That's not the question here. The question is, is there a place in your mind and in your heart and in your practice where you think that you have a certain license for occasional indulgence to a certain point that it's okay because of the way you defined it to be okay instead of the way God defined it. We have entertainment. We are entertained to no end. And there's entertainment sensors, those boards who determine if what we see or watch or goes on our media is appropriate or not. And if it's acceptable, if, it's, if, if mature people can handle it, or is it available to a younger people? Now, you take the word entertainment. Look it up, entertainment. It's the act of entertaining. Okay, that didn't help. Agreeable occupation for the mind. And as a church, we would say the soul. Mind is part of the soul. It's a diversion, something affording pleasure, diversion or amusement. In other words, something that keeps your mind on things that don't really matter. It's entertainment. It's to get you off of the things in a divergence. Is entertainment. To keep you from, to change your way of thinking. Jesus confronts this vulnerability in the church because what's happening is we tolerate an impure mindset and in a toleration of an impure mindset, it extinguishes the light of the church. And our light dims. So people can't tell the church from anybody else. What happened? Entertainment. Do you see how it flows out here? He's addressing something. Sexual impurity adversely affects your confidence as a believer. I mean, you cannot log off of an internet site or turn off inappropriate television where you've been feeding your mind stuff and the next moment feel bold when an opportunity to do something for Jesus arises, you can't do both. And so you don't. The, the problem he's addressing is those that have lost their ability to be salt 
have lost the ability to shine bright in a world that so much needs your light and so much needs your impact of saltiness. But you've come and you've corrupted in the things that you felt licensed for sexually. You've exposed yourself because it's okay. You can handle it. It's within the perimeters of okay. But when opportunity for Jesus comes along, you're not there because your confidence has been stolen from you. The light's diminished and impact doesn't take place. And we know, we know that this is true. Stand back, take a look at the statistics alone. How many people are coming to Jesus? How many people do we share our faith with? How many people do you lead to Christ? How many people are radically being transformed by Jesus? The numbers are way, way down. The churches are decreasing. Is it because God's not big enough? It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what Jesus, warning, warning, warning. You live in a sexually perverse era. And you've taken on the license of Baalism and Jezebelism, which is a spirit that gives you permission to be able to do this, and you think it's okay, and you can still go to church and still love Jesus. Well, you can still go to church, and you can say you love Jesus, but when it comes to your effectiveness, it's been diluted. And people don't see the light anymore. Wow. Do you feel the weight that I'm feeling on this one? Church... Jesus says, I'm walking among you, and I can see this. Do you see it? Remember, that's why he started off, those who have ears to hear, do you hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? Because many, and I had to come to this early in ministry, many will hear the word. I've come to learn this. Not everybody wants to be changed. Not everybody wants to be like Jesus. Not really. They be like Jesus as long as it doesn't change the things I want. And not everybody wants that. And I, I had a hard time. I believed, I, when I started out ministry, I believed I could save everybody. And it was so frustrating when, when, when you just saw people wander away and you saw, you saw sins continue and that they become identified by their sins. And you say, you don't have to do that. You can be an overcomer. And they say they want it, but at the same time they say, but, but here's my reason. And I've come to the conclusion not everybody does. Matter of fact, most don't. Even inside the context of a church. Most will walk away unchanged. James says you will look in the mirror and do nothing. Move on. What happens? Entertainment, diversion. It pulls your soul away. So here's the call. It's not meant to be a super heavy, but it can be. It can be something that can be life-giving. Where I say, God help me. Because I've just allowed something to shroud intimacy with you. And my effectiveness to touch people's lives. If you say you haven't been hearing from Jesus lately, has there been something cutting in that's been causing the inability to hear Jesus and his love for you? Wow, that's a big one. So the second one here was they tolerated impurity. Third one here, the lie that material success is synonymous with blessing. Chapter 3, verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You say you're rich, but you're poor. In contrast, he says in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich, in contrast. Isn't that an interesting choice of words? So here he says, you say I'm rich. Look at all the things I have. Look at the blessings of God. And then later he says, I see your poverty. I see you don't have everything that everybody else has. But you are so rich. 
He's contrasting something. He's calling the lie that material success is synonymous with blessing. It is not. It is not. It is not. It is not. Material, material wealth is not the same as spiritual wealth. Now, it doesn't mean everybody has to be dreadfully poor and you know, not having enough food on their table. That's not what he's saying. But do not, and we have a tendency to look at, how many times have you done it? I've done it. You treat somebody different because they're high up and they're very wealthy and they're high up in a position. And you treat them, you talk a little different to them. And I hate that. He's saying we treat people different. We have in a society that somehow they, they've earned that. They are better than others. And then those, like I mentioned this gentleman this past week, well, something, they deserve that maybe. So therefore, I, why should I get involved in their life? And he's debunking this right here. The lie that material success is synonymous with blessing. It's not. Jesus is not talking about simply our struggling financial. He's talking about the deception that supposes that material success is synonymous with the blessing of the Lord. And it's not. So the substitution of activities for priorities. Tolerating, tolerating immorality. And the lie that material success is synonymous with blessing. And number four, the placement of religious systems that remove grace and glory. Two times in chapter two, Jesus mentions a group called the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. And in reference, he refers to a phrase, a synagogue of Satan. It's always kind of been of a mystery to me. The Nicolaitans and the synagogue of Satan. Now, Nicolaitan or Nicolaitanism is based on two words that come from nikaios, a Greek word, and laos, two Greek words brought together in the Nicolaitans. The Bible commentators say it represents a hierarchy. Listen to this. It represents a hierarchy that has to do with people who are up on the platform or who hold office in a church. It is the belief that these, the belief, and he was debunked, it was believed that those who hold, those who are up on the platform and those who hold office in the church, that those are the important people. And the rest are inferior. That was a belief. The Nicolaitan, the belief of that time. So the Nicolaitan belief, those that had public ministry, they were the leaders of the church, that they were more important than the laity, Never really liked the word. And secondly, that because they are more important, they will be more highly used of God. And Jesus is saying, you've just removed God's grace and glory when you've done that. He's calling us on it. The notion that the church is an institution and the people who head the institution and hold the power are really the ones important to God they're the ones that have real contact with God. They're the movers and shakers in the kingdom. And Jesus says, that's not what the church is about. He debunks it. The Nicolaitan dominated people in such a way that they had become a substitute for their ministry. The people really didn't have ministry. The people funded the projects, listened to their leaders, and they didn't do anything. And I'm going to suggest there are people in this room you are a worker in the restaurant industry. Maybe you serve on an assembly line. You're, you serve as a teacher in a school. Maybe you are in sales. Maybe you're in real estate. Maybe you work under the hood of a car. 
Maybe you clean floors for a living. Maybe you work under kitchen sinks for a living. And I want to say, this is what he's addressing. Don't think for a minute your ministry is any less noble than any public ministry. That's what he's saying. This, what I do today, and whatever people you see in robes and vestigers and all that stuff, they do not have a bigger place in ministry. They've got a responsibility they must fulfill. I take that serious. But it's not more important. The Nicolaitan situation was they had lifted themselves up to a high place of importance. And he called them on it. He says, they're not. And he says, and what happened is then the people just divert everything to them. You do the ministry. I've had people, and they've told, I've told them, and it's just out of ignorance, I understand this, where they say, well, don't we pay you to do that for us? And I go, no. We are all ministers. I do something, my full-time capacity is not to do your job. I do my job. Before the Lord, as you do your job. And I was blessed this week. I didn't tell her I was going to say this, but Lori, this past week, we were at our conference, and they asked a question. They said, turn to the person next to you and ask them their purpose in life. So I turned to Lori. She was next to me. And I, what's your purpose in life? And she said, my purpose is, you remember what you said? It had to do with her workplace. She works uh, for, in a secular workplace uh, as a reception office admin. She works there, and she, as far as she knows, none of the people around her are followers of Jesus. And, and she's, my purpose is there. And I was thinking, I, w- I would have answered differently, you know. And, and, and then I thought, that's really cool. She sees her purpose where God has planted her. Not to leave that up to some pastor in the town that she works in. She doesn't work in this town. But it's her place to impact their lives. God has placed her there strategically for that. And I was pretty impressed. And I just want to say that that's all of us. And so the issue of the Nicolaitans is you've, you've, you've given to the platform something that we forfeited ourselves. And at the same time, here's the other issue. When the platform begins to believe we're, you know, that we deserve more, then that's a problem. And that's the problem of the Nicolaitans. And he calls them on it. Wow. I mean, Jesus gets right to the point, doesn't he? And he calls out the church. It's as if he's walking right through. He is walking through our church, 2022. It's like he's walking through and he's identifying stuff going on. So I just want to reiterate what he said. What besets the church? Four things. Here they are. Substitutes of activities for priorities. You've gotten doing things, but you've lost your first love, your passion, your intimacy, your place of worship. We should be the first to be there. We should be the first to lift our hands. We should be the first to call on the name of the Lord. We should be the first into prayer meeting. Oh God, I've come to meet with you. My text this morning was from Song of Songs in chapter 7, verse 10. I desire, I desire you, Lord. I just love on you. Second one, they tolerate immorality. We think we are okay to have a little bit of immorality in our hearts and minds. But understand, Jesus says, You've lost your light. You no longer can affect this world anymore. You've diminished your ability to impact this world. And oh God, I see that. And I know you do too, don't you? God help us. Thirdly, the lie that material success is synonymous with blessing. It's not true. And fourthly, the placement of religious systems that remove grace and glory. So here he is. He gets to the end. He, how do we overcome? Number one, look to Jesus and listen to his spirit. He says, those who have ears to hear, listen to what the spirit is saying. Listen to him. Draw near. Draw near. Secondly, repent. 
It's not difficult. It's not rocket science. 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And thirdly, treat adversity as a friend. Material success is not synonymous with blessing. And in two of the seven letters, Jesus specifically addressed the issue of adversity that stormed in. And it brought them to poverty. But then Jesus turned around and says, but guys, you're still rich. He blessed them. What seemed like a reversal and the world will look down on you. He says, you're rich in faith. Treat adversity as a friend. The people allowed adversity to become something that brought beauty into their lives. Allow your diversity. Allow the difficulties. Allow the afflictions to bring beauty in your life. Don't make it an excuse. This is your time to shine. And then he gets to the last part, Revelation 2.10, uh, where he talks about, don't be afraid to suffer for what I have suffered. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Remember, 10 speaks of testing, a time of testing, but the testing will come to an end. And he says in chapter 3, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, how many know the rest of it? Go ahead and say it. I will come into him and will eat with him. I will fellowship. I stand at the door. If you hear me, if you hear me, open it. Open it. Don't keep it closed. Open it and invite me in. So, Father, I thank you for this, Lord. Lord, I thank you that, God, you've called us to a place where we are not meant to simply thrive, simply survive to just get through another day. God, I pray you would help us to respond in areas maybe you've spoken to us, this church, this local expression, this morning. Lord, as we come around your table in a few minutes, we do so in a spirit of repentance, in a spirit of, God, I need to surrender something to you. Maybe it has to do with our priorities. Maybe it has to do with our sexuality. Maybe it has to do with our belief system about money and things. Or maybe it has to do with how we have felt that we were not called to make a difference in the giftings that you've given us to this world. God, in whatever it is, Lord, I pray today we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as you knock on our door, our own individual heart's door, that we not only would hear you, but we would invite you in to change our lives. Grant it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.